Hello, dear podcast listeners. It has been a while. This is Sam Kulik, host of the Escape from Society podcast, and I have not posted a podcast episode since April of 2013, and it is now February 2014. So it's been quite a break. And uh, I guess what happened is that the original reason, the original setup of this podcast was uh, to examine songs from the Escape from Society record and other things maybe related to song poems and that material. And uh, I did a podcast for nearly every song on the album. There's still one that is yet to be made, but uh, we exhausted that material and I didn't know what else to do and it was turned out to be a pretty busy year. So I let the podcast languish a little bit, but I am back. I have a new concept, what we nice modern people in 2014 would call a reboot. So welcome to the rebooted podcast, which I plan to make an episode a month and discuss the performing that I've done in the last month. So sort of gigs in review. I do not want this to be a navel-gazing kind of exercise. Uh, I want it to be more like a radio program with some discussion. Of course, it'll mostly be in the form of monologue. Um, But some discussion of ideas and emotions and practicalities raised in the month's gigs. and uh, But also just, I'm going to play a lot of music. So there's a lot of music ahead on the show today. And so I'll dive right in. The Stroke of Midnight, January 1st. I had a tuba in my hands and was playing Auld Lang Syne at a party with some friends, heralding a new year of musical activity, perhaps more tuba playing. I was playing the tuba a lot at the end of last year, uh, mainly in in a production of Tennessee Williams' play The Mutilated, which had a little four-piece band, and I was doing this New Orleans type of uh, tuba playing that I got pretty good at and really loved doing. The tuba is a great instrument, has a lot of character, so I don't know what to do with this newfound skill of mine, or newly developed skill of playing the tuba, because it's a lot of fun, although I don't want to totally detract from other musical activities. Maybe some new avenues will open up for me. And sure enough, the first performing that I did in uh, 2014 was with the tuba, which I brought down to the Grand Street Bar and Grill, where a friend of mine, Langhorn Slim, was doing... Not a secret show, but just kind of a this is his friend's bar announced on Twitter kind of show. And it was packed and it was fun. And I brought the tuba down and set in on a song called Fire. It's a song that I already knew because I played trombone on the record um, and played in this tune, which I think is in E. And we were doing it in F, which is an even more tuba-friendly key. So I just played a duo with Sean, had a lot of fun. Here's the album version of the song, Fire.
Langhorn Slim and the law there. So uh, I ran into Joachim Badenhorst, a friend of mine who plays the clarinet and saxophone. He's from Belgium, and he was in town for a little thing. And we met up at the Wayland, which is a bar on Avenue C that used to be known as Banjo Gyms. And on Wednesday nights, our friend Dan Peck plays with Grandpa Musselman and his syncopators. Uh, band look combo run by Matt Musselman the trombonist who is a big fan of Jelly Roll Morton and Red Nichols and his Five Pennies so this this band which is uh, eight pieces or so does 
transcriptions of that music, and the vibe is so great. Um, it gets kind of crowded in the Wayland on Wednesday nights. It does really well. There's no TV screens in there, just some candlelight. You get a nice old-timey feel with the music. You're hearing some red nickels and his five pennies in the background right now. And uh, Joachim and I both had horns with us, so we sat in on a blues mahogany hall stomp and had a good time. It was it was nice to see him, and uh, Joachim and Dan actually did some recording while Joachim was here, so I look forward to hearing the fruits of, of that labor. All right, well, in the fall of 2012, I did a couple of recording sessions with Ed Pastorini and Shazad Ismaili that turned out really well. We were just there to improvise, and we did these sessions late into the night, playing sometimes for 40 minutes at a time, just letting tape roll and letting ideas come, and taking naps and waking up and playing and switching instruments and doing all kinds of stuff like that. You're hearing some of the results in the background right now. I've taken the material and mixed it and set up what is a pretty fine album statement, but it is unreleased. Pretty difficult to get the attention of the small number of people who are running record labels these days. It's not very hard to release something yourself, but there are advantages to working with record labels that make it a sought-after arrangement for musicians still. People to help share costs, but also to share responsibility of all the things, all the work that goes into bringing an album out into the world. And some of the people that I have worked with in the past, the people who put together the last starring record, are at the label Northern Spy. And Northern Spy has moved into, they've moved their offices to the building formerly known as the Silent Barn. This is the original Silent Barn that my friends in Skeletons and Shinkoyo built. I remember when they found it probably in 2005 and learned how to sheetrock and build up the walls and we recorded the Skeletons record Lucas there and it became a show space and for many years had shows all the time and I participated in a fair number of those and have my fond memories. But the space, some of you know this history, was the it was a live, work, and perform type of space. And the people who were living there got evicted for some reason uh, a couple of years ago. And the eviction notice was posted on the front door and the people left with some haste. And whatever thieves in the neighborhood saw this eviction notice, felt like it was going to be a bonanza if they broke in and vandalized and stole things that might be there. And sure enough, there was a lot of 
still in the space that got stolen and destroyed. So that was tragic. The Silent Barn has luckily landed on its feet in a new location and the old barn space is now called Transpicos. It's very similar to the way it used to be, but Northern Spy is running operations out of there and helping put together a concert series. So I was set to play with Ed and Shazad on this particular Thursday night concert, and then Shazad got held up in Baltimore. He was having car trouble. Ed suggested calling Jeremy Gustin, who came down and played drums in in Shazad's place, which was great. So it was an entirely new trio. I'd played with Jeremy before, but never so intimately. And we made some nice sounds and good decisions and got a good response from the audience. It was mostly what I perceived to be a rock audience. It was more or less a rock venue and more or less a rock bill that we were playing on. All the other bands play songs uh, in one fashion or another, and we're not playing songs. The only discussion that we had before the set was should we ever stop or should we just play the whole thing at once? Uh, And I don't think we actually had a consensus on that but as it happened we did we probably played three pieces of 10 to 15 minutes in length each uh and i've i felt a little strange improvising on a bill with people who were playing songs in front of an audience that i think was there to hear songs or at least was used to hearing songs and sort of forgot that Audiences, I mean, there are a lot of people who don't go to see live music. We don't have to worry about them. The people who go to see live music generally are people who enjoy it and value it. And what they really want to see is something honest communicated from the performers. And whatever expectations they bring as far as what they're familiar with, that can all be just transcended by uh, a, an honest performance. People, a lot of people have pretty open minds. But it's easy to forget that, and I, I think I might have sort of forgotten it a little bit that night and gotten caught up in my own head a little bit about what should we be doing for these art rockers? Should we be really rocking out? How are they going to respond to the bass trombone? Uh, it's a situation where you don't really want to second guess yourself and the beauty of improvisation is that I can go into any situation and play what I'm feeling and how I want to relate to people at that very moment and not be constrained by having to play songs and a set list that were written when I felt like something else I feel like this right now so I can play this right now um you know, emotionally or physically or whatever, whatever internal, external stimulus I'm receiving, I can turn it around and create my own stimulus that way. I have had in the past experiences where I knew the audience well and felt handcuffed 
by their expectations, thinking, oh, these people know me as ex-musician. I must be ex-musician for them tonight. In contrast to nights where I'm playing in front of people who don't know me at all, and I feel more free to try something new or uh, go in a different direction. On the flip side, there are nights where you're playing in front of supporters and friends who know you and it's precisely because I know their expectations of me that I work hard to transcend those expectations and the audience's understanding of what I'm doing might be more genuine and more deeply felt because there's a basis uh, for comparison I'm going off on the whole know your audience quandary which affected my mental state somewhat on the night of this performance with Jeremy and Ed incidentally we told Jeremy that Shazad wasn't there because of car trouble and he said oh yeah I think I know why that is he and I were recording in Vermont last week and I crashed into his car with my car or uh, something like that. That was something about how the story went. So, in fact, we may have called to substitute for Shazad the very person who was the reason why Shazad wasn't there in the first place. Anyways, the show went off all right, and to give you some idea of what it sounded like, we can listen here a little more to the recordings that Ed and Shazad and I made. If you run a record label and you want to put this out... um, Send me an email. Really? Next up on the month's calendar, the following night, 
the Iranian funk band that I'm in called Mitra Sumara was playing the Makam Festival, which was in downtown New York at a, an arts building, 16 Beaver Street. I've played there before, um, I think when it was an LMCC swing space. This is the Lower Manhattan Cultural Council that is able to get a hold of unused office space in Lower Manhattan and uh, give it to artists to perform in and, uh, or use as a studio or an office or whatever you know suit their needs. There's a lot of unused space down there, particularly after September 11th. I think that's when this swing space program began because a lot of corporate tenants fled the area um, possibly in, you know, fear, possibly because there were months when people couldn't go down to the area and go to their offices, uh, and possibly because whatever business partners maybe they had in the, uh, Twin Towers now were no longer in the area. I don't know. Anyways, um, the Macomb Festival was featuring music about nine bands this the uh, apap conference was happening so a lot of promoters were in town and this was an apap showcase of some kind and uh it was showcasing performers of music ranging from north africa and the middle east through the balkans and into south asia so i saw every band i saw was absolutely incredible uh, and it was it was a fabulous night of music. Mitra Samara played, uh, let's see, Kenan Azmeth, the Syrian clarinetist, was incredible. Uh, Karishi, an Afghani uh, player of this stringed folk instrument that I don't know the name of, played duo with a, a tabla player that was beautiful. And uh, it was just it was a great experience. Music nice times I don't think I've ever played Mitra Samara on the podcast this is a band that I play bass in and we do repertoire from Iran pre-Islamic revolution like 1960s and 70s Uh, many of the songs we play are on the compilation Pomegranates which you should run out and get and here is a track by Gugush who was one of the uh, most popular singers in that scene. She's still around, as a matter of fact. Um, and this is one of the Gugush songs that we play. This is not our version. This is Gugush playing. <laughs> Thank you. 
بی تو اما همه جا عبی و غم گرفته قبر آسمون یه قطر بارونم نداره تو اگه باشی آسمون صافه آسه ها پوشه کوه قافه با تو من بهارم بی تو شور زارم وقتی هستی خوبم وقتی نیستی بی تو یه قابش کسته با تو من بهارم بی تو شور زارم وقتی هستی خوبم وقتی نیستی بی تو یه قابش کسته رو دیوارم What you're hearing right now is Dr. Snitch. Dr. Snitch is my friend Brian Geltner, the drummer in Mitra Sumara, also in Double Handy, Blueberry, Johnny Society, other bands that I frequently work with. Dr. Snitch is the name of his solo project, and he has a record called Instrumental Health that you're hearing in the background, which he plays all the instruments. And Brian has been a consistent collaborator, and it's it's valuable to have someone who you work with over a period of years and in different projects. And Brian has done that not only with me, but with uh, Gwen Snyder and Kenny Siegel in the bands Blueberry and Johnny Society, which have been around for over a decade each of them same three musicians and often I join as a fourth or fifth musician and the stuff is very versatile so we did a show at the Bell House that actually featured a Blueberry set and a Johnny Society set so we appeared as a quartet twice 
that evening, but with Gwen singing and leading the band as Blueberry and Kenny singing and leading the band as Johnny Society. So right now I'll play a couple of songs, album versions of things we did that night. We're going to hear Blueberry track first and then the Johnny Society. Same musicians, very different stuff, very versatile fun people to do this with. I love it every chance I get. So here's the uh, Blueberry and Johnny Society tracks.
As I was saying about playing with Brian Geltner all the time, the night after this show at the Bell House, I went down and sat in with his band, the National Reserve, at Skinny Dennis in Williamsburg. They play there every Friday to Packed House. And National Reserve is a is an excellent blues rock, 60s kind of psychedelic blues rock, maybe in the mold of canned heat or something. And I'd sat in with them before, and this particular evening I went down and played about a set. Good time. We did Mystery Train, which you're hearing in the background. And when it started off, I laughed a little bit because... I had also considered going to sit in with the Dirty Water Dogs that night at a different bar, and they also always play Mystery Train, although their take on it is is more Cajun, it's got accordion and stuff. So I remember this Elvis recording from when I was a little kid. It was on some mixtape I have. It's one of my earliest remembered songs, and it's funny that uh, it comes back it doesn't come back to haunt me it comes back to uh, pop up and in nice little enjoyable situations here later in life not to dwell on these little sit-in gigs uh, had a nice official performance with the Western Anysphere which is a band led by David First who I met in 2012 and he was just starting to form this band and the Western Anysphere is an outlet for the music that he's conceived based on drones, both pitched and rhythmic drones, and the possibilities for shifts in frequency and timbre and rhythm and polyrhythms and microtonality within these drones. The band is five-piece. You're hearing some of David's drone music in the background right now, but this is not the Western Hemisphere. We have not officially recorded as of this date. Um, Viola, bass trombone, bongos, ebo guitar, and laptop is the classic five-piece lineup of the Western Hemisphere. We will be performing at Roulette on March 4th, so I encourage you all to come see us and support us. Some of the, some of the things we've done... The, the general approach to playing and listening that's utilized in the Western Hemisphere has crept into my musicality across all genres and all situations. And the, the way that it's opened my ears and made me think about relationships, sonic relationships, has been very impactful. So... For that reason, and for any other reason, I say come see us at Roulette, develop an interest in the band, see what we're up to. I think we're going to play that night with the Ashcan Orchestra, which is a very cool project that I will enjoy to see and I will enjoy to play with if we end up collaborating. So I got a new guitar around the first of the year, a new acoustic guitar, which I 
really like. I've been playing a lot around the house. Towards the end of the year, I was also listening to a lot of blues music, mostly Otis Rush, just totally fell in for Otis Rush. And blues players play the guitar. That wasn't lost on me. So an opportunity came up to play a, a little casual gig at a bar in Greenpoint called Lulu's, and I had an idea that maybe I'd form a little blues trio. Now, I'm not going to pull off some Otis Rush stuff, but there's another record that has been very close to me for years called Hound Dog, and that's what you're hearing in the background now. It's a duo between David Hidalgo and Mike Halby, and... They only made one record, and on almost all of the record, the tape is slowed down. And I don't know what their process was for doing that, if they recorded all the instruments and vocals at one speed and slowed it down, or if they recorded a few things, slowed it down, overdubbed more in the new key, the new tempo, or whatever. It's a great sounding record. The slow tape causes the voice to be this very kind of languorous, low blues singing we're not talking about like uh, slowing it down immensely this is not chopped up and screwed this is just a nice shift so that you get this fat tape sound and this crazy vocals so anyways I happen to have a nice low voice as you can tell and I like that kind of languorous blues singing so I conceived of a little trio that I'm hoping will develop into something. Bass clarinet, drums, and me singing and playing the guitar. Worked for a couple weeks practicing songs around the house and trying to develop a decent set list. There's some Zappa on there, some Curtis Mayfield, some Otis Rush, other things that are bluesy and we just tried it all out well, on a non-paying gig like this uh, I didn't call a rehearsal I just made some charts and gave the guys an idea of what I was hearing in my head bass clarinet especially as an instrument that can cover the bass stuff and also solo and fill in the holes around the voice a very flexible instrument the bass clarinet so we tried it out. Mario Maggio and Michael Evans were my collaborators. It was a freezing night at this bar, Lulu's, which is kind of a weird place. And I wouldn't say they treat their bands very well. They charge us for drinks, which when it's your job to sell alcohol, I guess it makes sense to try to sell alcohol to everybody. But when you're a venue that is using musicians to help bring people in the door so that you sell alcohol to those people, um, I really think that you shouldn't just charge bands a dollar less on high life. Uh, I think that's pretty insulting policy, and it's not that uncommon in New York to find drink policies like that so it always turns me off a little bit i also pose the question to you listeners is what do you feel like the etiquette should be band members getting drinks 
and tipping their bartenders. It's something I do all the time, um, whether I'm charged for the drinks or getting a drink for free. In fact, there's a there's one venue that gives out drink tickets to the performers for free beers, but it says you must tip the bartender. Now that venue is a place where musicians don't get paid. It is uh, past the tip jar kind of place. In those situations, should the bartender be tipping the band member also? Should the band member not really need to tip the bartender because they're co-workers? Like, do bartenders tip busboys? Um, they split tips with busboys in many situations. Should they be splitting tips with the musicians? I'm way off on a tangent here. Uh, but it's it's a weird part of the um, gig economy. Is a very minor part, you know, a couple of dollars go out of my pocket each night, but it's something that I, I feel like is probably never reciprocated from bartenders. And why is that? Uh, if we're asking restaurant patrons to tip the band and tip the bartenders why does the band also have to tip the bartender we're playing music for them they're serving us drinks it's a bit of an exchange no anyways sorry for the long tangent lulu's eh not gonna really want to play there again let's get to the otis rush song that i want to play this is a song called so many roads so many trains and i want to name our band after this song because it made such a searing impression on me when I heard it not too long ago for the first time. Uh, it's really extraordinary. So he, now you'll hear this music and hopefully you'll hear some more from from the new trio later in the year. It was a piano. 
Benny Goodman there doing Moon Glow. We're going to shift into jazz mode, more or less, for the rest of the podcast here, as I had a couple of jazz gigs at the end of the month. First up, Jesse Carolina and the Hot Mess got a call to come play with them almost at the last minute um, at this joint, Terra Blues, where I've played with them before. It's on Bleecker Street, and it's maybe kind of a tourist place maybe kind of a I don't know what this clientele is this was a Saturday night it was crowded people having a good time coming in and listening and um, Jesse Carolina is definitely a, a house favorite there so mostly blues music in Terra Blues also some jazz uh, the hot mess is a hot jazz band doing early repertoire so we played this tune, Moon Glow, and we also did What a Little Moonlight Can Do. And we're going to now hear the Billie Holiday recording of that, which is another one that I remember from childhood. Just one of those things that I heard around the house that every time it came on, it registered a little more deeply than, than the other songs around it. For what reason, I don't know, but I've only played it a few times but it's so rooted in my memory that when Jesse wanted to put it in the set that night and neither of the other horn players knew the tune I was like yeah I know it just went into my memory and came out and um, got to play the melody and channel my inner Billie Holiday that's the funny thing about learning a song from a Billie Holiday recording is that she often didn't sing the melody very close to the way it would be sung by someone singing it in a show tune or something. I mean, she took a lot of liberties with it. But here she is with Benny Goodman doing What a Little Moonlight Can Do, one of my favorite jazz recordings. Thank you. 
Come to January 31st, the end of the month, playing with John Lundbaum and Big Five Chord, which is a group of five musicians that also perform similar to the way Blueberry and Johnny Society are the same band with different leaders. Big Five Chord is sometimes Brian and the Haggards when Brian Murray is stepping out and doing the leading. But this was a Big Five Chord gig where uh, John Lundbaum asked me and Justin Wood to expand the group to seven pieces and contribute compositions if we wanted to. And he sent us some Wiccan prayer songs that he had arranged on their last album. I think for no other reason than he found it interesting to include. Uh, There are no practicing Wiccans in the ensemble, nor are we picking on Wiccans. It's just, wow, okay, that's interesting. So he sent me this stuff, and I am not a capital C composer, but when I write music, it's often influenced by composers such as John Cage, who, although he was had vast compositional abilities, is well known for the pieces that I could describe as... Um, machines almost where there's a there's a process a sort of concept of the composition and then material which may be aleatoric or specific to any given performance gets run through the machine the compositional process and then you have a realization of the piece and inspired by that general idea uh I composed a a set of 17-note rhythms and then looked at these Wiccan prayer songs and and went searching for any 17-note phrases. And I thought if I found any, I'd be able to use them as the pitch material. So sure enough, there were 10 songs in this little packet that had 17-note phrases. Amazing coincidence. Um, 
most often the cadential phrase. So then I had all this pitch material, and uh, it was a good excuse to do some composing and try something new. The thing, the moment on the concert I actually enjoyed the most was when John turned to me and said, okay, you've got a three and a half minute unaccompanied solo to begin this song, which is something I wasn't prepared for. And I like playing solo, but often when, when a solo performance is coming up, I give it a fair amount of thought and preparation so that I don't, you know, it's one of those things where you, you want to be prepared and you don't want to get up there and have some sort of mental block not be able to perform anything that's worth listening to. But to get back to what I was saying earlier about the the honesty and truth and spontaneity that's beautiful about improvised music, sometimes you don't want to have anything prepared. Your whole life is preparation. Your experiences, your uh, technique that you've developed and everything. So in a moment, such as the one I had on this concert, I was able to access something very personal and it was a, a great opportunity to just be spontaneous and with the people who were in the room and that's a great way to improvise is to be sort of thrown in the deep end without any uh, little floaties on so no floaties here's a recording of big five chord from their album no new tunes which is the quintet it's it doesn't have the expanded horns but we are planning to record the uh, seven piece in March so got that to look forward to here's follow the swallow
There's the month in review for you. A good way to start the year creatively with different instruments in my hands and different collaborators surrounding me. 
Something I did not accomplish this month was earning money. I made very little money off of these gigs. A lot of them were door gigs with resulting payments of zero dollars, ten dollars, twenty dollars, and so forth. Not only was it a cold month, which is going to drive attendance down, bitterly cold month, but there was also a lot going on. I went out to see a bunch of good shows, and people had plenty of options of things to see other than projects that I was doing. So it's one of those give-and-take New York propositions where uh, often my calendar is is not so door gig heavy. But it's funny, you know, because some of the best music in New York gets seen by nobody for musicians who aren't getting paid. Some of the great stuff gets seen by nobody but played by musicians who are being paid very well. And sometimes there's a ton of people there and the musicians are getting paid and Sometimes there's a ton of people there and you're not getting paid. The uh, It's interesting to read that Super Bowl halftime performers don't get paid. It's like, come on. The NFL is making a case that because there are all sorts of other benefits to performing in a Super Bowl, and of course there are, that financial compensation direct financial compensation should be foregone give me a break people need to be a little more aware that what keeps people going on all levels of the economy is taking the money that comes in spreading it around you buy a ticket to see someone else's show they buy a CD of yours or someone else's or whatever. Just keep it moving. Keep a keep a network going and supporting and blah, blah, blah. Uh, this is the end of the episode. You made it to the end. Fabulous. It's now February. There's some things to look forward to. I'll be checking in with you guys again in a month, and I look forward to that. Ciao.